last week we left off with Haman, uh, pretty disappointed, complaining to his wife and his friends because he had just been forced by the king to give the royal robes to Mordecai the Jew, uh, to put Mordecai on the king's horse and give him the king's crown and parade him through the streets and declare him honored by the king. Haman hated Mordecai the Jew, wanted to kill him. Haman hated all the Jews, wanted to kill all of them. He built a tower 75 feet high to hang uh, Mordecai on in his front yard. He passed a law that said on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Persians could kill all the Jews and take all their stuff. But the king had had this bout of insomnia and been reminded that Mordecai saved his life. And so he chose to honor Mordecai and make Haman do the honoring. Haman was pretty upset. Today, what we see is that Esther continues her plan to save her people. And as Naomi reads these passages, and you kind of sense the outcome of the scenario shifting, I want you to ask yourself this question. What is it that you expect God to do for his people and against his enemies? And what we hear, does that line up with what you expect? Let's give ear to the reading of God's word. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we thank you uh, for your word, for the recording of this event. Um, And I pray that as we study it, uh, that as we hear from you through it this morning, um, that you would make it come alive to us. Help us to see you at work in this scene. Help us to believe that even though we are significantly removed from it, historically speaking, that it matters to us. 
it has a message for us that you are teaching us something through this event. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty and powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, When I was a high school youth director 10 years ago or so, uh, the guy who worked with middle schoolers at the church, Caleb, uh, had a stalker. There was a guy who was interested in dating his younger sister, and uh, when Caleb said, hey, this is not appropriate, she's a lot younger than you, something snapped in his head, and he was enraged at Caleb. And so he would send him threatening text messages and emails. He said at one point he was standing behind him at the gym with a dumbbell and was going to kill him, but decided not to. Uh, And so Caleb had a restraining order against this guy. Uh, One day we were driving away from the church to a meeting. Uh, Caleb was in his car, I was in mine, and he spun a quick U-turn, pulled up to me, rolled down his window, and he said, hey, that guy we just passed, that was him. He's driving to the church right now. He said, I can't go confront him. Obviously, that's not going to be good. He was like, but I'm worried about the people at church. Uh, It was just another pastor and our administrator, but I too was concerned. So I drove as quick as I could back to the church. Um, And I'm not sure if you've noticed, but I'm a pretty big guy. I got out of the car, and I, I needed to be bigger. And so I walked in, you know, as puffed up as I could be. I threw open the door like it was a Wild West saloon, and I'm looking around. I'm looking around. He comes walking past me, uh, and we, he was a little bit shorter than I was, but I definitely tried to, like, look down, you know, more at him. And I was like, what's up? He walked out, and I walked in, talked to the administrator. Turns out that he had come just to deliver a letter telling Caleb that he was in a 12-step program, and he needed to seek amends. Uh, I was totally prepared to deliver some justice if I needed to. Um, But as I read about justice being delivered in this passage, I don't quite feel as comfortable with it. I hear Haman being hung on this 75-foot spike in his own front yard, and something feels a little off. Why didn't Esther or Mordecai uh, pardon him? Why didn't they forgive him? Why wasn't he spared? Maybe you feel that way. Where is love? Where is forgiveness? Maybe you read this and you think, no, finally, this guy gets what he deserves. Justice is finally served. And no matter what emotion is brought out in you as you hear this story, what we see here is the fact that God is consistent throughout Scripture to work in favor of his people and against his enemies, right? This is true of God throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of history. And this scene actually is such a perfect example of that, that it serves as its own analogy. We can use it to help us understand what God does, what our relationship with God is like and how he moves. And as we look at it, we see that God answers some deep questions that we tend to ask when times get hard. When we are oppressed, when we are opposed, when we are suffering, we begin to ask questions like, am I all alone in this? Where is God? Does God even care? If God cares, what has God done? What is God doing? Three questions specifically that God answers in this passage. Does God even care? What has God done? And what about right now? We're going to start by looking at this question, does God even care? Esther is concerned about her people, and rightly so. Haman has wanted to kill Mordecai, has built this giant spike out front, 
And he's also enacted this law saying on the 13th day of the 12th month, all of the Persians should rise up and kill all of the Jews and plunder their goods. She's terrified, and rightly so. She decides that she's going to use her position as queen to ask the king to do something to save her people. Now, you may remember this plan. She goes before the king, and she has to win favor in his sight, right? She hasn't been invited. He could kill her at the drop of a hat because she's come into his presence, but he extends the golden scepter, showing that she has won favor. And he says, I'm willing to be generous, Esther. Tell me what you want. I'll give you whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom. Esther doesn't give it all away right then. She has a plan. She follows the plan. She says, come to dinner tonight, you and Haman. Let me throw you a feast. Once the king is nice and full of food and wine, he says, Esther, I'm really generous. Tell me what you want. I'll give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. She says, come back tomorrow to another feast with Haman, and then I'll tell you. And that second feast is what we see this morning. When she finally presents to the king what she wants, listen to the way she does it. Verse 3, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. She uses this powerful language, grant me my life. And then she actually repeats the language of the edicts sent out by Haman that we saw in chapter 3. Destroy, kill, annihilate. She is tying this deep emotional response that she's had to the actual facts of reality, trying to get him to see that reality is terrifying for her. We know this. Whenever we come to actually face reality, a lot of times that's when fear and pain and suffering starts to set in. As I was finishing up seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, Nicole and I knew that we probably weren't going to live there for a while. The church that we were a part of wasn't hiring. Uh, We were hoping to work there, and the other churches weren't really hiring for someone with my skill set. And so we knew we were going to be moving away, moved out of our apartment into Nicole's parents' house just for a couple of months until we figured out where we were going. Uh, We also brought Michaela home from the hospital to her parents' house. They knew that we weren't going to stay there forever, that we weren't going to live with them forever. They knew that we were probably moving away from Charlotte. But when we met with her parents and sat down and I told them that I had accepted a position to plant a church outside of Nashville, it was so, the, the reality of it was so painful that Nicole's dad just got up and walked out of the room. He didn't say anything. The facts were so painful when he had to face reality. This is what Esther is doing. She's helping the king see how painful this is for her. And she wants to know, am I all alone in this or does the king care? And when we are faced with reality, when things are starting to overwhelm us, when the truth of the situation is breaking us deep down in the dark, quiet places of our hearts, we ask a similar question. Am I all alone in this? Does God even care? As we're lying in our bed, terrified of the meeting that we have to have tomorrow, of the phone call that we need to make, of the fact that we have to go pick up a family member from the airport, those questions begin to creep in. And they're so uncomfortable that we try to just silence them, push them away. Does God even care? Right? Often in Scripture, uh, we are related to God through the analogy of marriage. God is the, the groom 
His people are the bride, husband and wife, king and queen. That's how this section serves as an analogy for us. The queen comes to the king and says, do you even care? Do you know how hard this is? And how does the king react? The way every wife would want her husband to react when injustice has been revealed. The way all of us want people to react when injustice is revealed. He is angry. He is upset. Not at the fact that she's ruined dinner. Not at the fact that she's been keeping her heritage a secret for years. Not in the fact that now he has to do something about this problem. But he is mad that someone would treat his wife this way. So mad that he gets up and he runs out, right? You've been this mad before where you just start, you start pacing, you start moving. I'm, I'm angry. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm so upset. That's how upset King Ahasuerus is. And he determines to do something about this injustice. This pagan king reacts in the same way that God reacts to our cries for injustice, of injustice. When we cry out, to God and proclaim the problems of our life, the suffering, the pain, the oppression. God cares. When we suffer, He cries. When we are grieved, He is grieved. When we come to Him with our problems and our pain, He is angry. Not because we only come to Him when we have a problem. Not because oftentimes we back ourselves into our own problems. Not because uh, He has to now do something for us. But he is angry that something has corrupted the life he intended for us to have. He is mad at the fact that our relationships are broken. Relationships with him, with other people, with his creation. He is upset and enraged at the effects of sin. And, like the king, has determined to do something. But what? God cares, but what has he done? What has God actually done for me? That's the second question that we see being answered in this passage. The king is so angry, he demands to know who has done this. Who perpetrated this injustice? Who would threaten to take his bride away? In verse 6, Esther says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. I actually like the Hebrew a lot better here. She says, hateful, hostile Haman. She points out the immediate threat She says, that's him. He is the most dangerous thing to me, to my people, and to our relationship, king. He is the most immediate threat. And we can almost see the king's wheels start to churn. Haman, this guy that I've trusted, my my right-hand man? I mean, we've partied and we've, we've drank together so often. Like, how could it be this guy? He's so confused and angry. He gets up and leaves, and he goes out into the garden And Haman is terrified, and as he falls down to literally beg for his life, the king comes back in. And as soon as he sees this, he enacts justice. Immediately, he knows what must be done, and Haman is taken away. King Ahasuerus exacts judgment in the complete opposite way than Phil Dunphy does. Phil Dunphy is one of the main characters in Modern Family. Not sure if you've seen the show. Hilarious. There are three families. They're all related to each other. And one of them, uh, husband and wife, Phil and Claire, have three children. And their youngest child, Luke, their only son, uh, in the very first episode of the show, he has an airsoft gun, right? A little plastic gun that shoots tiny plastic BBs. And he shoots one of his older sisters. 
and Phil and Claire argue over the fact that they agreed if Luke ever shot any of his siblings, the punishment would be that he has to be shot by the gun. And Phil is saying he doesn't have time to do this. He can't figure it out. They sit down and literally plan when they're going to shoot their son. It's part of the joke. I can't shoot him today. I have a showing at the house. So he says, why can't you shoot him tomorrow? Well, I'm gonna, I've got to get my nails done with my mom, so I'm not going to be able to, you know, shoot the trigger. He says, I guess I could shoot him tomorrow at 5. Uh, and the, the episode ends with him and his son standing out in the backyard, and he's got the airsoft gun kind of aimed at him, and he's not looking, and he's really afraid. And then finally he says, I'm sorry, buddy, I can't do this. I can't shoot you. It would just be wrong. And Claire comes running out of the house, and she says, I knew it. I knew you were scared. I knew you couldn't do it. And when he responds, he goes, I'm not afraid. He pulls the trigger, of course, and shoots his son. Um, but he was terrified of exacting judgment, right? The king is not. As soon as he sees Haman on the couch, he says, verse 8, Will he even assault the queen in my presence and in my own house? As the words left his mouth, they covered Haman's face. They bag him up. He's done. As soon as the king figures out that Haman is the immediate threat, Haman's power over Esther and Mordecai and the Jews is gone. There's nothing else that he can do to hurt them. He is taken out and he is hung on the spike in front of his house. Because of his betrayal of the king, the king finally sees that he only cares about himself and his own wealth and his own power. The king assumes that he has assaulted the queen, and so he hangs him. And all of his treasure and his wealth and his possessions and his status are given to Esther and Mordecai. This is the same way that God exacts judgment on our greatest and immediate enemy. Sin is our greatest enemy. It separates us from God. It twists and corrupts our lives, and ultimately, it brings us death. In Genesis, when God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says, if you do that, if you break my law, you will surely die. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. This is the greatest enemy that we have, the immediate threat to us. And God dealt judgment to it very swiftly on the cross. Once again, Judgment was served on a wooden tower, but Jesus was the one who hung there because of our betrayal, because of our selfishness, because of our assault on God's order of things. He died the death that we deserved to die, but he didn't stay dead. And when he rose from the grave, he guaranteed our victory over sin and death. The penalty of sin has been extinguished. Just like Haman, sin no longer has word over you, has no power over you. There is nothing that sin can do to take your life away again. As soon as Jesus uttered the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sin was bagged up. It was taken out. It has been extinguished. God exacted justice on sin and death on the cross. And all of Jesus' treasure and his wealth and his status was given to you. This scene serves as a perfect analogy for us. Now that's great, you might say. Awesome. I'm glad that when it comes time for me to die, that I know because Jesus died on the cross for me, I don't have to spend eternity separated from God. But what has God done now? How has God done anything to help me deal with my boss or my spouse or my kids, my family, my neighbor? Like, what has God done now? 
That's the third and final question we see God answering in this passage. And it's the question that Esther and Mordecai actually have to wrestle with for a couple of months. Haman has been executed. They have received his uh, property and his wealth. But there's still this uh, 13th day of the 12th month edict, right? The corruption of Haman still lingers. And on the 13th day of the 12th month, the Persian people will rise up. They will kill the Jews. They will plunder all of their goods. Esther and Mordecai are still feeling the effects of Haman. And so they decide they need to get the king to do something again. And if you remember, Esther was concerned about earning favor in the king's sight the first time around, not sure if he would extend the golden scepter to her. She fasted for three full days before she went to see him. But now she's not even worried about that. Chapter 8, verse 3, we continue. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, this is a a little piece of Persian political trivia, in case you ever find yourself needing to know this. There was no way to undo an edict sent from the king. You can't take it back. So when the king sent out the papers that said, kill the Jews, he couldn't send out another one that said, whoops, autocorrect, I meant kiss the Jews. It's not, he can't do that. So the only thing that could be done was to send out another edict to make the first edict really hard to take advantage of. And that's what happens. Esther and Mordecai get together and they write an edict, verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. The Jews are given the power of the king to fight back, to defend themselves if anybody were to attack them. Meaning, the first edict, saying that anybody could attack the Jews, suddenly becomes complicated. The king stamps his signet ring into these edicts, saying, I have given the Jews power to fight back. This is the perfect analogy for us. The power and the penalty of sin has been taken away by Jesus on the cross, but not its presence. We still feel the twisted effects of sin, just like Esther and Mordecai were feeling the twisted effects of Haman. He's still corrupting the people, their world around them. And God, through His Spirit, gives us the power to fight back, to defend ourselves, to turn back the wickedness of sin, and to oppose the progress, the dark forces of God's enemies. Now, 
listen to this. In the Old Testament, that meant God called his people, the nation of Israel, to physically take up arms and to fight the physical forces of God's enemies, to go and to defend themselves against this people or those ites. You remember the old ites from the Old Testament? The Amalekites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, all those ites? That God was saying, I need to enact judgment on them, and you, Israel, will be my arm of judgment on earth. Go and take them out. But for us, we have to understand that no greater act of judgment can be done than was done on the cross. God pouring out the penalty of all sin onto a perfect, sinless human Jesus, who was God, deserving of power and glory, receiving the punishment of our sin, nothing we can do to anybody on earth can be more judgmental than that. Which means that the invitation to fight back, to defend ourselves, comes not against God's uh, opposition, people who are opposed to Him or people who are opposed to His people, but fighting back looks like fighting the sin within us, looking inward and fighting the corruption and the corrupting power of sin that still lingers. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. We read part of it as our confession passage this morning. But in other parts, what Jesus says is, you guys have kind of become okay with certain aspects of sin, certain patterns. You, you've, you've come to just accept that they're always going to be there. He talks about thing like, things like anger and lust, retaliation, not keeping your word, dishonoring marriage. And what he says is that we need to actually fight those more passionately. He says this in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, I don't think that Jesus is telling us we should harm ourselves. But I think what he is telling us very clearly is that he grants us the power to endure loss in order to fight sin in our lives. He has given us the ability to lose things that are important to us. If it means cutting sin out of our lives, Jesus is calling us to fight sin. And in this passage of Esther, we see two very important foundational things that help us fight sin practically today. The first is that we have to know and believe that God has fought and won against sin for you. He has fought for you and he has won you. Why would God include a book like Esther in his Bible? A book where he is not mentioned at all. A book where there is no encouragement to a right standard of living or good practices. A book that holds up someone as flawed and compromised as Esther and Mordecai. Why would God do that? He does it to show that God has stopped at nothing to keep his people safe. That God can use anything. He's powerful enough to use pagan kings and flawed followers. Something as mundane as insomnia and something as ridiculous as the pride of sinners in order to protect his people. God uses this book to show you 
that he has stopped at nothing to fight for you and secure your place in his family table. Know this. Believe this. The second thing that we see is that we're invited to follow this example of battle that we are given from God. To identify the source of immediate danger and to take action against it. What is that sin pattern in your life that is so latent it comes up daily, multiple times a day? What is that sin pattern that you've come to accept is always just going to be there? Identify it, but not just to yourself. Go take it to someone you trust. Confess it, because when we bring it into the light, Jesus gives us the power to begin to kill it. This is how plans are made to kill sin, not by yourself, because we love sin too much, but with others who love God and love us. We are invited into this battle. God protected His people 480 years before the turn of the century, before uh, Jesus was born, by opening the eyes of a Persian king to the wicked, twisted plans of Haman. This is what God does. He brings sin into the light to help us kill it. A couple of months after I drove back to that church to protect the people in it from this guy, I found myself sitting in the Fulton County Courthouse with Caleb. Uh, By coming to the church, this guy had actually um, broken a restraining order that he he had against him, a temporary one. Um, But because he had done so in order to apologize and to make amends, Caleb was kind of concerned that the judge might see fit to uh, not extend the um, restraining order, worried that maybe the judge would say he's not a threat and we don't need this enacted anymore. And so we went down there together. I went with Caleb and we're sitting there in downtown Atlanta courthouse as a judge is handing out different restraining orders, overturning some, extending them, hearing all of these terrible, heartbreaking stories about people's lives. And three rows behind us was this guy and his lawyers. And so I'm sitting with Caleb in this cold wooden bench, uh, and I'm feeling, you know, pretty good. I feel like it's going to go well for us. Someone comes and taps Caleb on the shoulder, and he gets up and leaves and goes back into the judge's chambers. It was their guy's two lawyers. So now I'm sitting in this courtroom. I don't know a single person in there, and this dude who has seen me before knows who I am. Remember, I'm big. I'm not forgettable. Three rows behind me, and I can feel that same feeling come over me. I start to puff up. I start to get ready, right? Maybe this judge is going to overturn it, and he's going to try something as we walk out of the court. I'm just, I'm getting ready for anything. And Caleb comes back, and he says that the judge took a look at all of the texts, and all of the emails, and this letter that was delivered. And because the truth of who this other guy was was brought out into the open, the judge says, no, you have to stay away from him and his family forever. He extended this um, the uh, agreement. He, he won't allow him to see Caleb or his family ever again. And he put his stamp on it. The judge put his signature on it. Not only has he told the person that he has lost, that there is no more contact to be had, but he has given Caleb this piece of paper that helps him fight against this guy trying to break the restraining order. God has done the same thing for us He has not only defeated sin completely on the cross, but he gives us the power to defeat the corrupting effects of sin in our lives. He doesn't want us to just go through life being twisted 
having broken relationships. He invites us to fight against those things by giving us each other, by giving us confession, by giving us the sacraments. And he does all of this because he cares and he loves us so much. God cares for you. God cares about what you're going through. And he invites you to pick up the fight that he is continuing to wage so that you know that he will one day bring you home where there is no more sin, no more suffering, no more tears, sickness, or disease because of what he has done for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you care. We thank you that you care so much that you sent your son to live a perfect life and to die the death we deserved to die, cursed on the cross for us. And we thank you for what that means. It means not only that our eternity is secure in him, but it also means that we are given power to fight against the sin that still works in our lives today. Help us to trust one another, to confess to one another, to see our sin killed as it is brought into the light. We thank you that when we confess that you meet us not with judgment, not with anger at us, not with disappointment, but with forgiveness and love and new life. We pray this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen.